My kids are really into a, a song by Imagine Dragons right now. It's called Thunder. I don't know if you know the song. It's a really catchy song. There really isn't that much to the song. But one of the verses goes like this. I mean, the, the chorus is basically thunder, lightning, thunder, lightning, thunder, lightning, thunder, lightning. So that's about the depth of the song. Um, but here's one of the two choruses. And the, the chorus says this. This. It's kind of autobiographical, I'm assuming. Kids were laughing in my classes while, it was, while I was scheming for the masses. Who do you think you are, dreaming about being a big star? They say you're basic. They say you're easy. You're always riding in the backseat. Now I'm smiling from the stage while you are clapping in the nosebleeds. So very obviously in this song, here's a guy who dreamt about becoming a rock star, a pop star, or whatever genre Imagine Dragons is con considered to be. And, uh, and it's kind of like, a, you know, oh, I've showed you, you guys who looked down on me back in high school or whatever, now I'm a big star and you're cheering for me from the nosebleeds. And it's kind of this just very simple illustration of how there can be a desire in us to want to make a name for ourselves. Perhaps not to be famous like a band, like Imagine Dragons, but almost all within at least a certain group of people want to be known, want to be valued, want to be thought well of, want to have a sense of significance in that group. Even if it's just, say, our immediate family or our immediate co-workers wanting to make a name for ourselves in that particular context. And today, the main point is this simply. Let's not make a name for ourselves because God already knows our name. Let's not make a name for ourselves because God already knows our name. I'm going to jump right into today's passage. The Tower of Babel. Um, we did a series maybe a year ago on the early chapters of Genesis, and we didn't get to chapter 11 in Genesis. Uh, and I'm really excited to go over this passage. It's really a passage that uh, I think says a lot about humanity and what humanity struggles with. So it's verses 1 through 9, and I'll go through it um, section by section. But kind of the two main breakdowns of this passage is verses 1 through 4, you could say the theme is the word of humanity. What humanity says here, the people of Babel say, kind of indicates the theme of that section, verses 1 through 4. And then verses 5 through 9, it's the word of God that is the theme of the, that section. And we see the contrast between the word of man versus the word of God. Now, we kind of give, are given the setting. So let me just read verses one, 1 and 2. Now, the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. This indication of people migrating from the east was in these early chapters of Genesis, an indication of people moving away from God, moving away from the Garden of Eden where the presence of God was. And now because of the fall of man, because sin had entered into the world, God had sent them out of the Eden, uh, Garden of Eden. And this migration from the east was an indication of people moving physically, but also spiritually away from God. 
And we see what happens when this humanity moving away from God, what they come, come to do. Verse 3, And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. I don't, you've probably um, read this before, and I don't know if this, you've asked this question to yourself, but I've asked this when I've read it. It's like, why do they make such a point to talk about making the bricks and burning them thoroughly and using brick for stone and bitumen for mortar? And the reason is this. Um, so the Israelite readers of Genesis would have had ready-made stone in which they built with. And so the Mesopotamian context that is referred to in Babel here, they had a different method of building. And they were actually quite, I don't know, prideful of their method of building. And it really was considered in those times an innovation in the way in which they built. And so the emphasis on how they made these bricks and what they used to build with was an indication of sort of the technological innovation that went into the innovation and the pride they had in that building method. And so they continue on to say, see, first, first was their words about how they make the bricks. Verse 4, then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. Now, I'm from Hong Kong, land of skyscrapers. So I have to say, my initial readings of this long, long time ago was I just thought of very tall towers, very tall buildings. And that's really not what is going on in this passage. This is a long, long, long time ago, very ancient methods of building. And so most scholars believe the kind of tower that was being built is what we would call a ziggurat, which is essentially... Um, I'll demonstrate in a little bit, but it doesn't really, I mean, maybe we would say three or four stories high and just bricks built up like a staircase leading up to the top. Now, when we think of city, often the definition for a city is there's a defensive wall around it to indicate, hey, this is a place where we protect ourselves, where we gather together. But in the ancient Near East times, the cities were really not demarcated by um, a wall for protection purposes. The cities were really for religious and public purposes. And the ziggurats were built really essentially as an indication of wanting to reach up into the heavens to have direct access to the gods and to give the gods access down to them as people. They would build often a shrine at the top of these ziggurats and they would paint them blue to indicate that they matched the heavens that they reached up to. And we hear this in the language, right? It says, the top of it will reach the heavens. We see the language in the verse here that this is intention to really to vie with God, to reach up into the dwelling place of God. Psalm 115 says this, verse 16, the heavens are the Lord's heavens, but the earth he has given to the children of men. And so what we see in the story of the Tower of Babel is man is trying to cross, transgress the boundaries that he has given to man. 
uh, that God has given to man. The earth is given to humanity to live in, to dwell in, but the heavens are the dwelling place of God. And so this ziggurat is built, again, in direct defiance of God and God's design. And we see this in the motivation of this building, in, in the humanity's own words here. They wanted to make a name for themselves. It's very explicitly said here. So in their separation from God, in their separation from relationship with God, there was essentially an, an existential crisis within them, asking themselves the questions, who am I? What is my purpose? Will I be known? Will I have significance in this life? Where do I belong? And so the answer, really, to all of these questions in this text for them is, let us make a name for ourselves. Let us find significance for ourselves. Let's build that significance for ourselves. And again, it is in defiance of God's design. And we see that, again, explicitly because they say, let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. These words may not seem to strike us that much, but we have to remember that God's design for humanity was be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. God's command originally when he created humanity was to fill the whole earth for these image bearers, humans to reflect God, to represent God, to bring glory to God all over the earth. And humanity right now here in Babel saying, no, let's stick together. Let's get a sense of security together in this city. Let us build our own tower and city and make a name for ourselves. Be God to ourselves. There's this false sense of security they think they're building by going inward with each other rather than going out as God had commanded them to do. Perhaps there's also fear of being stuck alone out there with God. What will happen to us if we disperse out there where God is? We must stick together as a people. But they defy, again, God's design and God's command to them to fill the earth, to bring glory to God wherever they should go. So the Tower of Babel is not just an account of humans wanting to be creative and innovative, innovative and God being petty and coming down to punish them for being creative. In the context of these early chapters of Genesis and of how God made humans for relationship, how God made them to bring glory to God, of how God made them to represent him, represent him on earth, it is really an account and an example of how separated humans had become from God, of how humans sought to make a great name for themselves rather than their creator's name, of how humans were overtly rebelling against God and God's design of them, and of how humans sought to transgress even the boundaries of God's dwelling place. And it's interesting that in this very ancient text, there's also a theme of technology in this passage. The people of Babel had great pride in their building techniques. It's ancient technology, of course, which we would almost laugh at today. 
but it is innovative technology for them nonetheless. And so in our age, we think of the power of Silicon Valley, and we think of the power, really the overwhelming power and influence of the big four, Amazon, Google, Facebook, Apple. It's really mind-boggling the amount of power these, these four companies have globally. And it's mind-boggling and even scary at times to think about how much power they have. And we've seen that come to the surface in recent times. And this passage reminds us that technology and innovation has always been used by human beings as a bringer of existential significance. But it reminds us that it's not something new for today in the world where Silicon Valley rules. It existed in ancient times where technological innovative advances always brought this temptation for man to find significance apart from God in making a name for themselves. And so... When we think of Silicon Valley in this context, it's really, it's old hat. It's just kind of on steroids. In biblical history, the Tower of Babel is really the first example we see in Scripture of humans trying to make a name for themselves through technology. And this ability to do so is God-given. Technology enables us to subdue the earth as God had commanded us to do. And it sets us as humans apart from other species. It is a gift from God. And yet at the same time, in our sinfulness and our brokenness, we use this gift and we pervert it for our own purposes. It's interesting to think, I just looked up the vision statements for the big four companies. Google's vision statement is to provide access to the world's information in one click. Which probably includes my personal information, browsing habits, and spending habits. A bit scary. Amazon's vision statement is to be Earth's most customer-centric company where customers can find and discover anything they might want to buy online. Which apparently includes coming into my house to drop off packages, or the newest thing is getting into the trunk of your car to, to, to leave packages there. That's a new thing they're looking into. Also a bit scary to me. Facebook's mission statement is to give people the power to share and make the world more open and connected. So open that we don't know what they're doing with our personal information, apparently. When we think of it on one side, it's inspiring what's being done. It is creative. It is innovative. It is a reflection of our design to be able to do these things, to subdue the earth. And yet, we found throughout the ages, in any technological advance, that there's a dark side to those advances. And these vision statements, and these are just examples, I'm just picking on them really a little bit, these statements are entirely godless. And that's going to sound not really the way I mean it to. What I mean is that God is not in the equation. We don't even consider that God should be in the equation. The norm in our minds is that God should be separated from all of these endeavors. That's the secular age we live in. God has nothing to do with those things. God, separation of church and state, right? God should, have, should be separated from government, should be separated from commerce. But that is not God's original design for us. God's original design for us as human beings is that our faith impacts everything in our life. The way we rule over the earth, government, 
the way we create cultural goods, commerce, it should influence everything. I think we live in a secular age where what the, what the people on Tao Babel did just seems rather harmless to us. We want to say to God, like, God, geez, just let them build their tower. Like, leave them alone. What's the big deal? You're a bit petty here, aren't you? But here's the thing. The ghost of living for God and God's glory has become such a faint, subconscious, distant memory for humanity. And we think it's normal that God should have nothing to do with most of our endeavors. And we say, God has to do with my spiritual life, but nothing else. And this very story says, no, God has to do with everything. God is the creator. God is the one to whom is worthy of all of our praise and all of our life. Just because we live in a secular age doesn't mean that our lives should be lived separately from God. But so often that's what we do. Even as Christians, so much of our lives is, is lived separately from God without consideration of what does God have to say about this part of my life. And subtly or overtly, we can find ourselves living our lives seeking a name for ourselves. Seeking to find significance and security in our accomplishments rather than in God. And just because it seems entirely normal to us doesn't mean that that's the way God intended it to be. That doesn't mean that, that it's right and pleasing to God in his eyes. There's nothing wrong with building a city or a tower. That's not what the point of Tower of Babel is. The point is, when these things are done with the motivation to fill some existential void, that that void is impossible to fill with those efforts. No one who sought power and influence for the sake of power and influence will ever feel like they have enough of that. No one who sought fame for the sake of fame will ever feel like they have enough fame. I'm guessing that not many of you in here are like, yes, I need power. I need influence. I need fame. None of you strike me as those people. But I think that most of you could probably be honest with yourself also to know the ambitions that you have that are apart from God, that you've left God out of the equation of those ambitions, that you've sought your significance in those accomplishments, that you've sought to find a name in those accomplishments. Let's see what God does with that. Verse 5. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they all have one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and there confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. 
this phrase right here, and the Lord came down. This is really the pivot verse in this passage where it changes from the word of humanity to the word of God. What does God have to say about this situation? God comes down to us to speak. There is a dramatic irony that happens right here that may not be evident. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to illustrate it a little bit. My kids were very helpful in this endeavor. They built me a Tower of Babel, which I will show to you. I've been hiding it in this room so that no other children or adult Lego lovers would mess with it. They have built me a Tower of Babel from Legos. It's actually quite brilliant. This is kind of what a ziggurat looks like. Right? Bricks built up into this kind of rectangular or square shape, a staircase that leads up to the shrine at the top. Right? So humanity made a Tower of Babel to reach the heavens, to have access directly to God. See how they're still hard at work, all the Lego guys, right? Now, think of this as what is happening in this passage. And children, if you want to come and look at it, you may. Here's the Tower of Babel. Imagine I'm God, I know. It's not great for the pastor to say he's God. Let's say I'm God, and I'm in the heavens. This is as high as I can get. I could have brought a ladder, but imagine I was even higher, right? And I'm God in heavens, in my dwelling place. And man has made this Tower of Babel to reach up to me, thinking, look how great... Our building is. Look how great our towers. Look how high we have gone. Four stories. I mean, not very impressive for today's standards. The Lord come down is this irony. Like, it's so puny from God's perspective what has been made. It's so small. God in the heavens to look down and come down to the tower that man has built that man thinks will reach up to the heavens. It's laughable. The hubris, the arrogance of man is laughable. But the Lord comes down to man to speak to them about what man has built to reach up to the heavens to find significance for themselves. Thank you, my boys, for building this. Okay, kids, go back to your seats. I know it's awesome. I want to play with it too. I know some adults really had to resist coming up here and looking like a child. Is it sacrilegious to put the Tower of Babel on the Lord's table? I don't know. I'll put it down here. The ziggurat, the Tower of Babel, is literally a staircase to the heavens, to the gods. That's what it was meant to be. It was deeply religious, spiritual, philosophical in nature. It wasn't just man building a harmless building and tower for fun. It was meant to be in defiance to God. Bruce Walking is um, commentary to on Genesis says this. Its builders think their temple tower reaches into the heavens. It is so low that the Lord has to def- descend from heaven just to see it. That's the irony of that. The arrogance and hubris of man thinks they can reach the heavens when they're so, so far from reaching God through their own efforts. 
in verse 6, the Lord said, Behold, they are one people and they have one language, and nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. God is concerned about what people as one people will do in this world without relationship with God. How will... How will... How will people go awry in what they are seeking to do for their own name, for their own significance, apart from relationship with God? What God-given boundaries will they cross now? What unintended consequences will they bring into the world as they continue to create and innovate? What dark side will they create in the name of innovation and technology? I need you to hear this. This is not an anti-technology sermon. This is a message of how humanity's efforts apart from God has a dark side, has unintended consequences. We could list a million examples throughout history. For the historian buffs, I could put them up here and they could talk for days just listing off examples without even studying or thinking about it. It's an obvious thing to say. Yet I think our age has become so secular that we still think, oh, I don't know, it's all good. We don't want to hold the tension of, yes, God has called us to create. Yet if we do it apart from God, apart from relationship with God, apart from the wisdom of God, apart from the boundaries that God has set in this world, we will get ourselves into trouble. when we seek to make a name for ourselves, when we're building a tower to the heavens, when we're making a ziggurat, a stairway to heaven, we declare that we are the determiner of meaning, the definer of truth, the giver of meaning. We put ourselves in the dwelling place of God, we replace God, and we judge Him and His ways. And we have flipped the way it is supposed to be. And we will get ourselves into trouble. Most famous rock song of all time, I've already said it. Stairway to heaven, right? These verses are going to sound so familiar. There's a lady who's sure all that glitters is gold, and she's buying a stairway to heaven. When she gets there, she knows if the stores are all closed, with the word she can get what she came for. Oh, she's buying a stairway to heaven. I think the lyrics to the song have partly stood the test of time because they're so abstract and the writers have never really cared to explain really what they mean and maybe they don't really know what it means and who knows what context they wrote them in. But I think it is clear, clear that the theme in here, there is this poignant search for the heavens, for the spiritual, for meaning, for purpose. And the beginning of the song, this verse that I just read, is clearly about a woman who accumulates this money to find out the hard way in her life that there's no meaning through what she has accumulated and that she will not get to heaven through the wealth that she has found. And this is the only part, it seems, that lead singer Robert Plant would really explain. He said, quote, a woman getting everything she wanted without getting anything back. And it's interesting what this song has meant to the band Led Zeppelin. 
1975 interview with Rolling Stone magazine, an interviewer asked Jimmy Page how important Stairway to Heaven was to him, to, to the band. And Page replied, to me, I thought Stairway crystallized the essence of the band. It had everything there and showed the band at its best as a band, as a unit. Not talking about solos or anything, it had everything there. We were careful never to release it as a single. It was a milestone for us. Every musician wants to do something of lasting quality, something which will hold up for a long time, and I guess we did it with Stairway. I don't know whether I have the ability to come up with more. I have to do a lot of hard work before I can get anywhere near those stages of consistent, total brilliance. These words really jumped out to me. Milestone, lasting quality, hold up for a long time. I don't know if I can have the ability to come up with more. Consistent, total brilliance. It's this picture for how this song became for the band how they wanted to have a legacy, how they wanted to make a name for themselves. Seeking to do that apart from a significance, apart from significance through God. That's just one example we could list out of a billion that we see in our own lives, we see in the culture around us, we see in history. And in this passage, God thwarts, constricts humanity's power to make a name for themselves apart from God by confusing their language. We have to ask the question, is this judgment against God? Yes, I think it is judgment. But it's also God's grace to humanity for the sake of humanity's survival. What will humanity do in its brokenness if it had the power to collaborate in the way that is possible in all of our creativity? Often we think, oh, it'd be great. Will it be great? Does our ability to collaborate mean we won't collaborate in a way that will hurt mankind? And God did this thwarting and constricting also for the sake of God's plan to restore humanity to himself. And so we see at the end, this passage ends, verse 8, So the Lord dispersed them from over the face of the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore its name was called Babel, because the Lord confused their language of all the earth. And from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. Notice the emphasis here, the repetition. In just two verses, the author says twice, God disperses them over the face of the earth. And it's ironic, then again, that in dispersing them and scattering them over the face of the earth, that God fulfills for mankind what he had commanded them to do in the beginning. Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. Humanity said, no, we're going to huddle together and build a city that will reach the heavens. And God says, no, you're going to fill the earth. And that was the beginning of God saying, I will restore humanity, humanity to its original design. And so we find, as we look at the biblical story, 
where it most obviously begins to come to fruition after the dispersion is the verses that were read in Acts 2, where we see after the Lord raised from the dead, ascended into heaven, and sent his apostles out to proclaim the gospel to the ends of the earth, that there in Jerusalem the Holy Spirit came in power, and people from all different countries speaking different languages heard the gospel preached in their own language. The confounding of language that God brought about, the dispersing that God brought about, now through the work of Jesus Christ, through the Holy Spirit, he brings back together to bring back one language, to bring the nations together. And we see the full fruition of that because that was just a partial fulfillment. We see the full fulfillment of that in Revelation. The verse that we heard as the proclamation of peace earlier today. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priest to God and they shall reign on the earth. We see in Scripture that not only does God give us our name in Genesis, but that at the end in Revelation, our names are written in the book of life through our faith in Jesus Christ. God knows our name. Our names in ancient Near Eastern culture are not just labels which we refer to each other with. Our names are the essence of who we are. So when God knows our name, he doesn't just know the label that he's supposed to refer us to. God knows deeply who he has created us, who he intends us to be, who he has redeemed us to be. We don't need to make a name for ourselves anymore because through faith in Jesus Christ, God knows our name. God knows the purpose and meaning for which he has made us. God gives us significance through his love. He knows us. He values us. He has a purpose for for us, and through him we have meaning. Let us not make a name for ourselves because God already knows our name. A quick couple of application questions. You might be wondering why this was titled Called to Power for Service. And I might not have done a good job explaining it, but we look in the New Testament. I don't think there's any instance of Jesus or the disciples calling us to power. So the, the sermon title is a bit of a misdirection because Jesus doesn't talk about being called to power. In fact, when the disciples got power hungry, Jesus says, die to yourself, deny yourself, take up your cross, follow me, serve others. The emphasis is towards service rather than power. Yet when we look at Scripture, we see again we were created to rule over the earth as good, benevolent rulers who glorify God and rule for the sake of others. The power that we were given was not for ourselves, but for service to others. The problem with just talking about the New Testament is that we begin to think that either we should completely shun power, which actually we really can't anyway, or we just ignore it as a subject that we should talk about. 
either way we get into trouble because the reality is we all have positions of authority and power. Andy Crouch in his book Culture Making makes a really great point to say power is always contextual. And that means when we think power, we think Capitol Hill or maybe the state capital, politicians, really wealthy people, people high up in the organization. Those are the people with power. But Andy Crouch says power is contextual, meaning there's power that happens in very specific contexts. You could be the bottom of the totem pole in your company, and yet somehow because you're respected, because you work hard, because you do great work, that your voice matters. That when you speak, people listen. There's a power to that. Now the question is, what will you do with that power? Will you use that power to make a name for yourself? Will you use that power in service to God for the sake of others? And that's really the two application questions. In what way are you seeking a name for yourself? How can you use whatever power that God has given you, whatever influence, whatever authority, how can you use the power that God has given you in service to others for God's glory? We are called to power for service. To live for God's name, not our own name. And God knows that. And God, through Christ, has died on the cross for the ways in which we were like the people at the Tower of Babel seeking a name for ourselves. He sacrificed himself so that we might be restored to him, so that we might serve him and his kingdom for his glory. Let's pray.